We'll begin with Acts chapter 27. However, before I read Acts chapter 27, I want to read something from a commentary. This commentary came out in 1871. Um, so when he uses the term modern sailing techniques, you've got to think, well, 1871 oh, okay. it was modern back then. But um, not a lot had changed between the time of this uh, event that takes place in Acts chapter 27 and 1871. Um, this is written by a fellow who wrote a book about um, Paul's voyage here. And he, at that time, got on a boat and followed the, um, the um, same path that the Apostle Paul took in every detail. He went and stopped, went on shore where Paul went on shore and uh, looked at the seas, charted currents, all sorts of things. So uh, what he says in his book is how, obviously, how accurate it was and the reason why they took the uh, direction that they took was because of the currents and because of the winds and because of the weather and everything associated with that time. But let me just read his opening remark here. He says, It may be safely asserted, says Humphrey most truly, that no historical description of a long voyage and shipwreck has come down to us from ancient times so circumstantial, accurate, and natural in its details as to that which is contained in this chapter, meaning Acts 27. The transactions of the narrative require our close attention, and the style is not less deserving of careful notice insomuch as it shows a great familiarity not only with the technical terms in use among the Greek sailors, but with the metaphorical and poetical languages peculiar to a seafaring life. Of all the helps to a right exposition and a felicitous illustration of this most difficult chapter, None is equal to the, quote, voyage and shipwreck of St. Paul with dissertations on the life and writings of St. Luke and the ships and the navigation of the ancients by Jim Smith, Esquire of Jordan Hill, 2nd edition, 1856. Um, I share that with us because <clears throat> I appreciate certainly um, what the uh, commentator is sharing with us there, but... I would ask this question, whereas the Bible is written by God, do you think God knows something about sailing? <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> he does know the technical terms that the Greek sailors might use. So we should always appreciate that whenever we're reading the scriptures, we are reading God's word, and uh, it is indeed true every, every bit of it. Yes, and God knows the currents. He knows the winds because he is the God of the wind and the waves. He controls all things. So here we are in Acts chapter 27. We have the account that is set before us here. And I'm going to do a lot of reading today because I'm going to, I'm going to take a couple of passes through this because I, I find it most interesting when you see the big picture that the Lord has set before us here. So I'm, I'm going to read through 28 um, up until where they finally hit uh, Italy proper. Okay, Acts chapter 27. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and the centurion and certain other prisoners, excuse me, unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. And entering into a ship of Adramitrium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonicus, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon. And Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Maya, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Snidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmoni. And hardly passing it, we came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the ladings of the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, 
which is a haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. <clears throat> but not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Claudia, we had much work to come by the boat, which, when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, struck sail, and so were driven. And we, being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, we should have hearkened, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. And when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down the Adria, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country, and sounded, and found it twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again, and found it fifteen fathoms. Then fearing, lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern, and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said unto the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, he cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the rope of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, this day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. For there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they all also took some meat. And we were in all in the ship, two hundred, threescore, and sixteen souls. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. But when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion Willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Chapter 28. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said amongst themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit, they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. 
But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors. And when we departed, they laden us with such things as were necessary. And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the island, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. And landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. And from thence we fetched a compass and came to Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and we came the next to Putioli, where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went towards Rome. And from thence... When the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Apiphorium and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And thus is the reading of God's word. Um, I wanted to read that whole section there because there's a continuity that you would lose if we were just to go verse by verse or if we were to even stop after the end of chapter 27. And... um, And the continuity is the ship. And so that's what we want to keep on our heads as we go forward today. Um, I want to talk a a bit about the ship. One of the things I would hope you would uh, have picked up on this section of 27 and and 28 there is you'll you'll note that there's a change in the style and the change in the format from the previous few chapters. And that's because um, Luke is with them. Uh, now and that's why he he'll use the term we. So when we think about this uh, terrible, I'll call it terrible because it must have been terribly frightening, not for Paul, but for the other people. We know that he had two of his brothers with him, two of his Christian brothers. He had this Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. He's referenced in verse two, and he also had with him um, Luke. Now we know from Ecclesiastes chapter four where it says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath none other to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not soon broken. I want us to appreciate in terms of Christian fellowship and the body of Christ in a church is that we come together uh, for the benefit of mutual edification and to exhort one another and to help one another through this Christian pilgrimage. And so you you see that here in the context that there are three that are going to go sail to uh, Rome. So uh, Luke has joined him as has um, Aristarchus. Aristarchus, you'll recall, was the one who was taken in Paul's stead at the riot at Ephesus. They grabbed Aristarchus and dragged him in there. Aristarchus also joined Paul to bring alms down to um, Jerusalem, and here he is joining him on his uh, trip to um, Italy. Now, as difficult as this voyage is, we have to appreciate that when God is going to take you somewhere, you are going to get there. And so also we can see the doctrine of the security of salvation um, in Christ in this journey too. Now I've given you a map here so you can appreciate that they did by no means make a direct um, uh, voyage to Italy. And as we talked about earlier, that's because of the currents, that's because of the winds, and so they're taking shelter behind uh, the leeward side of certain islands and and the the mainland. And so this um, voyage, uh, at least from a mariner's perspective, um, takes the direction it does because of... um, of uh, earthly limitations uh, associated with wind, weather, and the currents. However, we should appreciate that in this pilgrimage, um, as the Lord leads us, we can expect persecution and tribulation. And that's a promise in the Bible. You know, people preach the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but of a truth, the Bible does promise Christians persecution and tribulation. And you're going to see that as this thing takes uh, place here. Now, we know that it says in Romans 15:4 that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. And so we're going to see that these things manifest itself on this journey, and we, at the very least, will learn that we can expect a, um, 
a difficult time as we pilgrimage through this, um, this life as the Lord takes us from the world and takes us um, to glory. Now, the ship here is the, um, the vehicle by which they're going to go from one place to another. And we know that a ship is a vessel that is used that takes people on a journey that they could not otherwise make. And so the first place we see that certainly is in Genesis chapter 6. And the ark there in Genesis chapter 6 is an obvious type of Christ. So I want to read a couple of places. Um, Actually, I want to read in 2 Peter about the ark because I want us to have an appreciation about what the ark did. The ark took God's um, people from the old world to the new world. So obviously there's a metaphorical um, lesson that's taught before us there. You know, they got through the flood. The flood represents the wrath of God, and so we're seeing similar things here too. But the flood took them from the old world to the new world. So I'm going to read Second Peter chapter 3, um, a few verses in there. <coughs> um, it speaks in verse, um, I'll talk, pick it up here, in verse, I'll pick it up in verse 4. Second um, Peter chapter 3, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's not a true statement. That is what people say, but things are not the same as they were. Verse 5 of Second Peter chapter 3, for this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So the old world was flooded, it was perished, everything died, uh, everything that breathed air rather died, except those things that were in the ark. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, that would be Christ by the word of God, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's speaking of believers. Just as God did not shut the door on the ark nor flood the earth until all of the animals that he wanted to be in there were in there, uh, so too... When all of the people are in Christ that God foreordained to be in Christ, when all of the people are in Christ that God wants to be in there, then he will destroy the earth. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so just as an ark was required to get Noah and his family from the old world to the new world, so is Christ required for us to get from this earth to the new heaven and the new earth. You, you can't get from here to there unless you are in Christ because he's going to burn the place up and just uh, like they needed to be in the ark, we too need to be in Christ and he'll take us to the next world. So as things develop here, um, back in Acts chapter 27, we do want to appreciate there is a difference between the way uh, Paul is treated and the way Christ was treated. As Christ was being taken to, uh, to the cross, Um, Of course, he was abused and beaten and um, scourged and uh, spat upon and smitten all along the way. Paul here is treated very well, and so we can appreciate certainly um, that the centurion into whose custody he's been remanded is aware that no charges have been conferred against Paul. And so he treats him very well. Not only does he um, allow him to... um, um, visit with people when they land at the first port um, and lets them have visitors, but he treats them well all along all along the way, and indeed at the very end there, he's, he's like, no, we're not going to put anybody to death because he wants to save Paul's life as well, and we'll get to that when we uh, get there. Um, 
Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and so we appreciate that the Lord is taking Paul away from Jerusalem and has kept him uh, safely in the custody of, of Romans uh, to protect him from the Jews that would, that would harm him. And we've talked about that in the past. But again here, the main thing I want us to look at is the, uh, the ships that are set before us here. The ship here we're going to see as a metaphor for Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection and the salvation of his people. We also see it as the Christian pilgrimage, which I've mentioned a bit already, but also as a metaphor for Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the salvation of his um, people. We know that in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, things, that Paul had purposed in the Spirit that after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, that he would go to Jerusalem, saying that after there, I must also see Rome. Um, And so... One of the things that I want us to appreciate here is that when you consider the life of Paul and God working with him, um, God had purposed that would Paul would go to Rome back and all the way back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when he was on the road to Damascus. God said that he would go before kings. So God has purposed that Paul would do that. Paul later has that in his heart, that he would do that same thing. I just read from Acts 19, 21, that Paul has purposed in his heart that that's what he wants to do. And then we know that the Lord reassures Paul in Acts 23, 11, that he is, in fact, going to go um, to Rome. So this is kind of what, this is not kind of, this is exactly what the Lord does. He's got a purpose for your life and what he wants you to do, and that he works in our hearts to will and to do of his good pleasure so that we want to do the same thing. Um, and that's how he works with us, and, and we do the things that we do. And as I'd mentioned on Sunday, there's always this, this tension between the divine work of God in your heart, and then human agency and human responsibility. And so here, the Lord has put it in his heart, and now Paul is going to do it. And we're going to see that manifest itself with respect to the men, uh, the sailors of, of the ship. Now, we have here um, three ships, and that's why I wanted to read all the way through to Acts 28. There are three ships. First ship departs Caesarea, which means severed. So we see that Paul is being, and his brethren with him, are being cut off from the world. They are being separated from the world. Um, and we can appreciate that God has sanctified us positionally in eternity past. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we read, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So before eternity passed, God had set had sanctified Paul, set Paul apart in his heart, and um, on the road to Damascus, then we, I think we, maybe we talked about that last week, where we begin to see um, experiential um, sanctification, where now Paul is, has been uh, separated from the world in uh, the context of his experience in life, and he continues to move closer and closer um, to the Lord in terms of his work and in terms of his heart and his love for the Lord. Now, there's some subtleties in uh, the language here, that you don't see unless you were looking to the Greek. Greek In verse 2 of 27, we read that it is a ship of Adramitrium. And that uh, if you look up the meaning of the word Adramitrium, it means not in the race I shall abide in death. Adramitrium means not in the race I shall abide in death. We see here that um, it says here that they entered into a ship of Adramitrium. And the Greek is onto a ship. There's a subtle difference. They got on the ship as opposed to getting in the ship, and they put themselves onto the ship. Now, what I want us to appreciate this is when you compare that with down in verse 6, it says, And the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy. He put us therein. The difference is the first ship they get onto, the second ship the centurion puts them into, and you're going to see that also in the other, in verse 11 of 28, of Acts 28. And after three uh, months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria. So the difference is, is being on versus in. And since the ships represent Christ, I hope we can appreciate that what we have here is the first ship that looks like Christ, but it cannot take them where they need to go. We don't know where this ship has come from. Um, and it can't take them where they need to go because we're going to find out later that they have to go to another port, get off that ship, and get into another ship. So this ship has no destination. 
And in verse 4, we see that the winds are contrary. And so they're going to be um, the contrary to where they need to go. And so it's going to be only with great difficulty that they're able to make any headway in terms of where that they want to go. Um, so in this context, there's no real separation from the world here because it actually says in um, the Greek here in verse 5 here, it says that they sailed over the sea. The Greek in there is they sailed through the sea. So they're not really being separated from the world here. So I, I view this as a false Christ, as false religion, these uh, false churches here that um, endeavor to bring the world into the church. They do that with their worldly music. They do that with a, a gospel that is not exclusive of, of Christ. And uh, those churches cannot take anybody to glory. Nobody will get saved in, the, in what the, those people are preaching in those churches. Um, <clears throat> they use language that I, I know of. I've mentioned in the past that I object to. They talk about being followers of Christ. <laughs> they use that language a lot. In the context of way it's used in Scripture, the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I have followed Christ. In other words, walk with me as I have walked with Christ. When these churches are using that language, the way I, I view it in my head is though Christ is over there and they are following behind him in terms of trying to do the things that um, Christ would teach them to do, much like a person might follow the philosophy or the teachings of Gandhi. Um, when they preach, I don't feel like they are preaching about a Christ that they um, are united with or that they, they truly know. I feel like I'm, when I'm listening to them, I feel like I'm looking at a Christ that's on the other side of a, a glass partition as opposed to being in the room with me. That's the way I would view those churches. And that's what's taking place here because they're on the ship. They're not in the ship. It, uh, we don't know where it's come from, and it can't take them to where they need to go. And that's the way these, these churches are here. Now, the second ship in verse 6 here is of Alexandria, which spiritually means man defender. This ship is driven by the winds. Um, spiritually, it means man defender. It has a, um, a uh, origination, and it has a place that it's going to go to. It's going to go to Italy, and undoubtedly, its ship is full of grain. We know that it's full of grain, and uh, the commentators say that e Egypt provided most or much of the grain for uh, Italy, so this ship is laden with grain. Typically, wheat um, in the scripture represents uh, Christians. Um, so this ship is one that is heading towards Italy. It's heading towards its uh, destination here. Now, Christ is the ultimate man defender. We know that um, he prays for us. We read about that in Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 31 and 32. This is the Lord uh, speaking about him praying for Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So here we again also have this metaphor of wheat. This is a ship that is laden um, with wheat, but the Lord prays um, for Peter, as indeed he does pray, pray for us all. Um, we have, the, we can appreciate that the Lord intercedes for us. In Hebrews 7.25, we read, Wherefore he is able to also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth, to make intercession for them. The Lord is ever making intercession for us. First Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Um, the Lord is ever mediating for us, and he acts as our high priest, um, and that we are told that we can go boldly to his throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we're going to see this when he moves, when we, the ship moves to Malta, and uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we read, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And what happens when the ship gets to Malta? The ship dies, it's broken. And what happens on Malta to a serpent that bites the Apostle Paul? He's cast into the fire, cast into the fire. And so that's... The, um, teaching us about Satan being cast into the lake of fire. And this would never have taken place, of course, if the ship had not broken on that island. And we appreciate God's sovereignty in everything because the gospel is going to go to the island of Malta before it gets to Italy. So God has directed this um, for the benefit of those people there. But again, we're seeing the ship as a type of Christ. Now, the destination of this ship, again, it comes from Alexandria, and it's going to Italy. Uh, spiritually, uh, that means Italy means calf-like calf-like. And the calf is a figure that is seen in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7. There's uh, four beasts 
that are in the midst of the throne of God and round about the throne of God, and that is obviously a picture of, of Christ. So that's the destination uh, to get to God. Now, we see here that the centurion, uh, as we move further down here, that the centurion found a ship. Now I'm down in verse 6. The centurion found a ship of Alexandria and puts us therein. So we can appreciate that Christ goes out in the world and he finds his sheep that are lost and they are put into uh, Christ because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. And so the Lord leads us to that as his shepherd and he finds it. And so just we see that here with respect to the centurion, finds the ship and he puts them into it. Um, John six twenty nine. this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. And so the centurion here is acting as a type of Christ in this context to get these people on to the ship. Now, the centurion is of Augustus's band, and he's a servant of Caesar. In the context that is set before us here, Caesar can represent a couple of things. In the context here, Caesar represents God because Paul is going to go before um, Caesar. The Lord is taking him um, to the presence of God, which is the pilgrimage that all of us are on. We're in this world, and we're going to be taken um, to God to have uh, eternal fellowship and union with him. Uh, Paul had been reserved, you know, to be heard uh, by Caesar. So that's where he's going to go. In verse 9, we see that the voyage is to be with hurt and damage. And we know uh, that it says in Acts 14, 22, quote, that we, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And you're going to see much tribulation, certainly, in this voyage here. Um, the Lord says, you know, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's why is it hard for a rich man? It's because he's got more stuff he's got to let go. He's got more stuff that the Lord's going to strip from him. We see three times in this section here where they um, unladen the ship, where they throw things overboard. So they've got to part with their stuff. They've got to part with their goods if they're going to um, survive this voyage. Obviously, from a mariner's perspective, what is happening is the ship is starting to take on water and starting to sink. So they've got to lighten it so it will ride higher in the water. And that's certainly the last effort is so that they can run it ashore. They've got to part with everything. So everything by the time they get there, everything goes overboard. All of their cargo, all of the wheat, everything goes overboard so that they can ride higher and get into that place where that, that creek enters the ocean. Um, and in verse 14, we see that it suffers the Eurocladon, which uh, is a southeast wind, which we should appreciate from everything we've read in the Bible, that that represents the wrath of God. Um, the east wind, um, when you read through scriptures, uh, represents the wrath of God. You see it in uh, Pharaoh's dream in uh, Genesis chapter 41, where the crops grow up and an east wind blasts them and uh, destroys the crops. You also see it um, in Exodus chapter 10, in, uh, excuse me, yeah, Exodus 10, where um, Pharaoh is suffering the plagues from God and um, an east wind blows and brings the locusts in, which destroys all of their crops. Now, interestingly enough, you also see it when they're crossing the Red Sea. And think about this, they go from west to east as they're crossing the Red Sea, and the wind comes out of the east to part the waters. And so what you see there is a threshing floor where the judgment of God is, they're moving against that. Um, they're moving against the east wind, and they're moving across the th a threshing floor. And so the judgment of God is the east wind, um, which they get through. So east wind typifies judgment. So that's what's taking. Now we're seeing the wrath of God um, pour out uh, on, upon them. And the ship loose, begins to lose its material goods. They start dumping things overboard, um, and eventually the men are going to try to flee. And uh, this boat happens to have with it a lifeboat, which they normally would tow uh, behind themselves. But you can see here that, um, let me back up a little bit here as, in terms of how things are going here. They get to this place that is called Fair Havens. And it is past the fast, that's in verse 9 here, it is past the fast. 
which means it's past the Day of Atonement. So it's the end of September, and that's a difficult time of year to be sailing on the Mediterranean. They know that for about three months they, um, it's going to be very difficult, and that's what we see when they get onto the island of what is now Malta, is there had been a ship there that had been wintering for three months. Those people had found a safe haven to stay in. So they come to Fair Havens, and you can see on your map here, here where it is, but when they're in Fair Havens, they don't think that that's a good place um, where they uh, should winter. They want to get to uh, a little bit further to the west there. <clears throat> it's only 40 miles away, <laughs> so they don't have very far to go. And so that is where we are when we get to um, verse 8. And hardly passing it, we came into a place which is called the Fair Havens, um, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. <clears throat> Now, when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage not only of the lading of the ship but also of our lives. Keep in mind, Paul has been shipwrecked three times uh, before this. We read about that in 2 Corinthians. This precedes this. So he's got a little bit of experience sailing here, but he also has the Lord. And we should appreciate that a Christian ought to have a little wisdom given to them by the Lord, and he's telling them that this is going to be difficult for for them to do. The centurion in verse 11, we can appreciate that he's got a mission to accomplish about getting the prisoners up to Rome, and so he believes the master and the owner of the ship, um, and they think that they can do it. Um, But Paul is saying, not a good idea. And And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, in their eyes, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phineas, and there to winter. So if you see on your map there, it's only 40 miles to the west that they need to go. And so they think that they're going to make it, and they only have a short distance to go, and so anybody who walks by sight and not by the Spirit would um, think, well, we only have 40 miles to go. Surely we'll make it. Well, it says in verse 13, but when the south wind blows softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. So they're trying to hug the shore there. They think they can get simply 40 miles here. But it says, but not long thereafter, there arose against them a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon. I can only imagine their dismay when they're trying to make this short trip, and then boom, the wind comes out of the northeast, and they are pushed away from the island. Being pushed away from the island, we read that they come on the leeward side of Clauda. When they're on the the bottom, on the south of Clauda, it says here we had uh, to work hard to come by the boat. What they did was they drew this lifeboat out of the water, and so they're under the south side, they're under the shelter of that island, and they bring that boat up inside with them. Spiritually speaking, um, if you have a lifeboat, you are not trusting in Christ. You are really trusting in your own works. You're looking for an escape clause, a way that if this Christianity doesn't work out, why then you've got this other thing that you can rely upon. Um, And um, as we've said in the past, you know, the grace of God does not combine with the works of man. You know, um, Christ's works plus your works uh, won't work. And so we have this other boat that's kept with them, which we're going to read later that they have to get rid of before they can and commit themselves to the ship, commit themselves to Christ before they will get um, safely onto the um, shore. So um, there they are. So they, um, they take the lifeboat up, and they also do something here which is very interesting. Um, it says that when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, struck sail, and so were driven. What they've done here is they've put up, I guess, what they call a storm sail, and they've also um, taken cables or ropes and wrapped it around the center of the um, ship. Um, uh, Marine engineering and architecture is interesting in so much as that you have forces um, that want to flex and twist a boat. So if you think of this piece of paper like a boat, if you have a wave right in the middle of the boat, it wants to do this with it. It wants to lift up the center and have the two ends drop. And then when the wave passes, and now you have one at each end, it wants to do this with the ship. It wants to lift up the front and the back. And so as it's doing that, you can imagine that it's flexing the boat, and the center portion is going to move in and out. So they've taken cables and ropes and wrapped it around the center of it to keep help it um, 
ride out the waves and, and survive this, this flexing uh, process here. So again, as the commentator had said, there's great details in terms of what these men are doing, which is consistent with the way the men would try to um, save their ship there. And that they were feared of running into the quicksands. If you see on your map there, down uh, on the bottom left-hand corner, it says the sands of um, Cyridas. That was an area where they had lots of shores and sandbars, and they were afraid of being driven down there where the ship would, of course, have been lost and they would have suffered the loss of life. So um, the Lord is going to drive them around this Sea of Adria, and eventually they're going to land on the island of, of Malta. So um, when we get to verse 31, the statement is made, except they abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Except ye abide in the ships, ye cannot be saved here. In verse 24, the Lord has assured Paul that God has given them all that sail with him. All in Christ will get to glory. Um, what we see happening here is um, the officers of the ship, and this is most likely the officers, they um, have placed four anchors on the, uh, the stern of the ship to keep it from uh, being driven on shore because it's at night and they don't know uh, what to expect in terms of the shore. And so under the guise of putting more anchors out, the undoubtedly the officers are going to lower themselves down in, and what they're going to do is they're going to flee to shore and let everybody else perish. Um, the men that are doing that are the only ones that have the expertise to actually manage the ship. And so when Paul sees that happening, he's saying, except they abide in the ship, no one can be saved here. And so we, have, again, appreciate the gifts that God has given in the body that we would all work together to accomplish um, God's ends. Um, each member of the body is necessary for the health of the body as a whole. And we read about the gifts in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, in a spiritual picture, again, we're also uh, appreciating that in John six thirty nine, the Lord says, This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. God has ordained that Christ would go to the cross, and it was wicked hands that crucified him. Um, and all of that was necessary to achieve the salvation of men, that Christ be crucified. And so uh, we read about that earlier in the book of Acts, that where he says that uh, by the foreordained council, I'm, I'm going to misquote it, so I do want to look it up. Um, Speaking of Christ, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So it is necessary for these men, which are wicked hands because they were um, endeavoring to flee from the ship and to save their own lives, um, they are needed to take the ship and to run it aground um, and where this creek meets the, um, the ocean. And so the wicked men would seek to flee and save themselves, but they are necessary. Um, to get the ship to the shore, that all would be saved, and the ship is going to have to be broken up because, again, it, it represents um, Christ. Um, we see here that it is on the 14th day that this final drama takes place. This is in Acts, uh, verse 33 of Acts chapter 27. It's on the 14th day, and what do we know happened to Christ on the 14th day? That was the day he was crucified. He was crucified on the 14th day of the first month. So again, we're helping us to appreciate here that what is taking place is this is a picture of, of type, uh, type of Christ here. Um, so in verse 30, it says, The men made towards the shore. And Isaiah 50.7, uh, Isaiah 50, verse 7, excuse me, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. They are committed to running the ship aground. They've lightened it as much as they can. They bring the sail up, and they're going to drive this thing in as hard and as fast as they can into this place where it will run aground between two seas. It's going to run aground between two seas. That's in verse 41 here. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart struck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the wave. And so they run it in between two seas. 
Now, what does he's typically represent in the scriptures? People. People. Represents, represents people groups. And so uh, we see that here, that we can appreciate that the ship is in a place dividing two different people groups. And so it is ever in this world that Christ divides between the elect and the non-elect, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Um, the Lord was crucified between two thieves. One was the elect and one was, was not the elect. Um, he's between the saved and the lost. He's between life and, and death. And whereas he is the way, the truth, and the life, this is the vehicle by which these people are going to come to shore. And we see that they ran the ship aground, and it was, it was stuck fast there. Um, again, from this fellow's book written in 1856 where he had sailed this area, they found that the, um, that place where they ran it aground is, uh, has a great deal of clay there. Clay represents sin in the scripture. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, speaking of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, it says here, when they came, uh, they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of sin. The Hebrew word for sin there um, means thorn, clay, and mire. And so they are stuck fast there, and the front of it is stuck fast in the, um, in the clay that is there. So it, it's, it holds it fast, and it's being broken up as it's pounded from the waves from behind. Um, you'll recall in um, Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, where Abraham has taken his son Isaac up to sacrifice him. Um, and uh, Isaac says, well, where's the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord shall provide himself a sacrifice. And they turn and they look, and they, what do they see? They see a ram stuck in the thicket. And so, um, so it was, the Lord was uh, mired or stuck, if you will, in our sin um, and held fast there. The Lord was nailed with, um, to the cross with um, three nails, four holes in him as this ship was originally anchored with um, four um, um, nails, four anchors, excuse me. So we see that the ship is, is broken up. And um, the Lord says of himself, this is my body, which is broken for you. So just as the ship is broken up, so uh, Christ uh, said of himself that he was, he was broken up as well. Um, we see in verse 42 that the soldiers designed to kill the prisoners lest any should escape. And we should appreciate that that represents the doctrine of substitution. In the Roman law, um, either the prisoner dies or this centurion, or the, the soldier that's guarding them dies. Somebody's going to death and going to pay for that crime. And so they see the doctrine of substitution taking place here. And the um, centurion really um, puts himself out on a limb when he says, no, we're not going to kill anybody, but rather I want to save Paul, because uh, Paul essentially has been the reason this entire ship was, was saved, because the Lord has said that he is going to give Paul all that sail with him. Back up in verse 23, uh, Paul had been absenting himself from the, in, from the people. And so while they're bailing and working pumps and endeavoring to save the ship, what is Paul doing? He's doing that which is most useful. Undoubtedly, he's been praying for everybody. In verse 23 there, he says, There stood by me this night the angel of God. And who do you suppose the angel of God is? It's, it's Christ, whose I am, meaning I belong to that angel of God and whom I serve. So the, uh, the Lord came to him and assured him of everybody's, um, that everyone would, would, be, uh, would be safe. Paul had previously reminded them, in verse 21 he says, But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall not be... Sure, there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. He's not saying that, hey, I told you so. What he's saying is, think about what I told you in the past, because I'm going to tell you something now. And just as that came true, so shall this, what I'm going to tell you, come true. So it's intended to encourage them and to um, give them cause to believe in them that you're all going to be safe and that you don't need to fear what's taking place here, but your lives shall be, um, shall be saved. So... Here they go. They are um, driven up on uh, sail up, and they drive themselves up as far as they can, and they all escaped safe to land. And we appreciate that it is only the church that ultimately is going to escape from the wrath of God. 
Other people shall not escape the wrath of God. And there are multiple places in the scriptures that speak about that, about how they indeed shall suffer the wrath of God. But here we appreciate that they all come safely um, to land. And they get on the island of, of uh, which is now Malta, or they call it Melita, which spiritually means escaping. That's what that name means. It means escaping. And indeed, they have escaped from the wrath of God. So the ship is broken up. In verse 5 of 28, we see that the beast is cast into the, into the fire. In uh, Matthew 23, 33, the Lord says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Well, they can't. The only way that can be escaped is if you stay in Christ. So we see that people are healed um, on the island. And um, as we move into verse 11, we find the third ship, which is of Alexandria, which was the same as the second ship, same departure place, and it's going to the same place as that second ship was. So we see this continuity in terms of Christ. It departs after three months, um, which has to do with the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ. Um, and we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, speaking of God, because these ships represent the same person. They represent Christ, the second ship and the third ship. It says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Ephesians 2, 6, has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this ship had been wintering there for three months, so Christ was ever with them, uh, in terms of what is being taught here in a, in a spiritual sense. Christ was ever with them. Uh, and that ship, they are put into that ship, and we see that it has on it Castor and Pollux, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. Castor and Pollux means twin brothers. Um, they are the brothers, if, uh, twin brothers of Jupiter, and Jupiter means first cause. So we should appreciate that as those who are conformed to the image of Christ, he is our brother, He's um, God manifest in flesh, he's our kinsman, and he does, in the fact, in the scriptures, call us his brother. Um, so we are conformed to his image, so we would be like twins. And so that's the ship that they get into, which represents a resurrected uh, Christ. In Romans eight twenty nine, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Think of yourself as a twin, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And in Second Peter 1, 4, it talks about us being... Uh, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world um, through lust. So I know that was a fast run-through, but I, I needed to cover a lot. So when you're looking at 27 and 28, you can tie them together in your mind and in your heart that what's taking place there is representative of Christ, being in Christ, being with him as we walk in this world, and going with him through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then being taken up to uh, glory um, with him. So we will stop with that, and then next week I think we might run through it again and look at it a little bit slower. Amen.